grace when we lock our keys in our car, but when our wife does it, we don't offer as much mercy and grace? You ever looked for your glasses only to discover they were on your head? You ever made an apple pie using pepper instead of cinnamon? My grandfather did that. You ever been searching frantically for your phone and then realize you're talking on it? Did that the other day. A lot of these just stem from a lack of paying attention or maybe paying attention to the finer details. We get busy. We have so many things going on upstairs that we just don't always consider the little things. Or we get sidetracked because we've got so much going on in our minds. And the prophet Haggai was dealing with this in his day and age. The people had come back from exile and were living as if this whole Babylonian captivity thing never happened. They had so many things on their radar, so many things and tasks that they were trying to get accomplished that they had forgotten about what matters most. And really, the entire situation can be summed up in verse 5, where it says, Consider your way. Haggai was written to a people just like us. People who were busy, but they were so busy that they were not paying attention to what mattered most. People who struggled to put first things first and to keep them there. Much like people today, the people in Haggai's day were living with misplaced priorities. For centuries, the Hebrew prophets had been accusing Israel of breaking the covenant with God. And you'll remember, in our study of these minor prophets, there are two main sins that come to the forefront over and over again. Idolatry and injustice. The prophets had warned, because of these sins, the great and powerful Babylon would come and destroy the temple and destroy the city and carry the people away into captivity. And that certainly happened in 587 B.C. But even in the midst of this doom and gloom message, even as the minor prophets pronounced judgment, there was this hope. There was this silver lining that there would be a glorious future on the horizon. While God's people would be hauled away into captivity, they held on to the hope that God would bring back a faithful remnant to inhabit a new Jerusalem. Haggai arrives on the scene in 520 B.C. Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem and the temple some 70 years prior. However, since that time, the Babylonian Empire had collapsed and the world was now being ruled by Persia. The Persians allowed the return of any exiles who wanted to go back to Jerusalem. And so under the leadership of a high priest by the name of Joshua and a man by the name of Zerubbabel, the Jews returned from exile and faced the daunting task of rebuilding. And if you want to see more of this and read more about it, you can go to Ezra chapters 1 through 6 and look at that sometime. Hopes are high and the future is bright for the remnant as they return. And as the years passed, Jerusalem slowly became, uh, came back to life. Homes are being built. Uh, crops are being harvested, stores are being opened, normalcy is being restored. However, there was a major problem, and that is the foundation of the temple had weeds growing up around it. It had lie in ruins with no work progressing on it for many years. You think about that, the people had no place to worship. Did they worship? And so you look at this situation and you see that these people were very busy. 
getting their lives back in order, trying to get things back to normal. Excitement was high. Hopes were high as they returned, and, and, and they tried to restore what had been lost. But in all of their efforts, Haggai comes to tell them it's all self-directed. You're not focusing on what matters most. So we have this, this vision, this picture of Haggai coming in wearing a hard hat and a tool belt around his waist like a, like a foreman on a construction project telling the people that they need to go and stop what they're doing and finish the temple. And if you look at chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, it reads, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not yet come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, It is time for you yourselves to dwell, is it time for you yourselves, to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? God's people start making excuses. Well, we're going to pray about it a little more. You know, we've got our own lives to tend to. As soon as we get that finished, we'll get to it. We'll get there. Just be patient with us. Give us time. You know, jobs, jobs are hard to find. We have a lot of things in our family that need to be tended to. When things slow down, we'll get to it. And Haggai says, that's not good enough. You certainly had time to build your paneled houses. You had plenty of time to cramp, uh, plant your crops and to harvest your crops. You had plenty of time to get business going. Now it's time to make time for what matters most. And I read these words, and it's like I'm, I'm looking in a mirror. Because I can fall into this trap, can't you? Haven't we all been there at some point? Where we get busy, and we just find ourselves drifting further and further away from what's most important. We get caught up in our job or in our family or running to different activities with our kids and all of a sudden we turn around and realize that the spiritual has not been tended to. We spend such an inordinate amount of time on quote-unquote life matters and we lose sight of what's most important. Sometimes we try to justify. Sometimes we try to come up with excuses like the people in Haggai's time. We say things like, well, you know, when things slow down, I'll get more involved in church. Our work is just so busy right now. As soon as things slow down at work, I'll get more involved. Or, you know, the kids are just at that crucial age right now, and we've got so many things going on. I'll be back as soon as they get grown. Sometimes as young people, we say, well, I'm going to sow my wild oats while I'm young. But as I get older, I'll turn around. God's people basically said the time is not right. And we essentially say the same thing. Our excuses, while they sound good, fall on deaf ears because I believe God is looking at us and our situation and he is assessing it the same way he did the exiles. And I believe he's saying you've got plenty of time to do all that you're doing currently. You need to make time for what matters most. And the first step to putting the Lord and his church in the proper place, I believe, is to stop making excuses and just start doing. Take responsibility. We all know what should come first. We all know that the ancillary things can become primary things if we're not careful. We all have misplaced priorities, and we've got to, we've got to evaluate our lives, and we've got to understand that excuses are like belly buttons. Everybody's got one, and yours is no better than mine. Notice again verse 4. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate. What's interesting here is that phrase, 
paneled houses. Your, your version may use roofs. That's a very telling phrase or word. What is being represented by this phrase is the fact that the people weren't building their homes. Their homes were already built. Paneled houses means they were putting the finishing touches on their home. They were hanging the porch lights and doing all the decorative things. They were getting the landscape done and, and all that kind of stuff that we think about today when we're putting the finishing touches on a house, all the decorations, all the things that make it look aesthetically pleasing or, or what we call curb appeal. That's what they were busy doing. Their houses were built. And yet they were spending all this time tending to the little finer details. And Haggai saying, look, you've got a place of worship over here lying in ruins. Get to that work and stop working on your paneled houses. Now understand, Haggai's not saying it's a sin to have nice houses. He's not saying that it's even a sin to have a house to live in. But they were spending an inordinate amount of time on their home, on their crops, on their business. And he's saying... It's time to put a stop to that and start focusing on what's most important. A full-on commitment to the Lord and His church is what they needed to do. The Lord and worship is what they needed to be focusing on. And again, we get sidetracked, don't we? We find ourselves in the same position sometimes. We, we shine the spotlight on ourselves and on our lives, and we think that what we're doing is the most important thing, and we don't persistently and consistently seek God and, and His church. We don't focus as we should on the things that matter most. And I think God is trying to tell us through the prophet Haggai that there are some things that are just absolutely most important. And we can't allow the common life to steal our focus. As a result of all their excuse-making and their selfish living, the Israelites experienced adversity. Notice verses 5 and 6. It says, Now therefore... Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. In other words, God makes it to where all their efforts are an effort in futility. You know, they plant crops, but they, they can't harvest any crops. They try to make money, but that money is not, is not there in the end when they need it. They... They, they look on these blessings that they had had before, and God says, no more. No matter how hard they tried, they were spinning their wheels. And my guess is we can all relate to that too, right? God was trying to show the people that you can be busy, but busy doesn't necessarily mean that you're being productive. You will never be more productive than when you work for the Lord and His kingdom when you're about kingdom things and pursuing kingdom things. We've all been busy doing things and think that we're productive and we get overwhelmed and we get stressed and we have anxiety. And some of us wake up to the reality of what's it all for? We're running like a hamster on a wheel. We're running as fast as our little legs will carry us and we're not getting anywhere. We're stuck in a rut and we're spinning our wheels. It's kind of like a pilot who constantly has to make tiny adjustments to stay on course. And if he doesn't make just those small adjustments, over time it builds, and he can find himself thousands of miles off course. And we can be the same way. If we don't make those tiny adjustments every day, we can wake up one day and find ourselves 
hundreds of thousands of miles off course. And we think, how did we get to this point? It, just little by little over time. By not making the necessary adjustments. There comes a point where we must act. Verse 8 of Haggai 1 reads, Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. Now the Lord's church provides a plethora of blessings. It is here that we come together to worship our Creator. It's here that we get to enjoy fellowship with individuals who share in the same uh, uh, triumphs, in the, sh- in the same struggles. It's here that we can bear one another's burden. It's here that we can edify and stimulate and encourage one another to bear one another's burdens, all those things that Paul talks about in his one another passages. But it is here at church that we can refocus and get our lives in order. There comes a point when we have to put away all the excuses and resolve to put first things first. And like the Nike slogan says, just do it. I mean, we can come up with all kinds of of justifications. and, And the elders can ask the preacher to preach on it. And the preacher can preach on it. And the deacons can approach it. In, in their different areas of ministry. We can talk about it in class. But at the end of the day, it's going to come down to a decision to do it. To set aside all excuses, stop being selfish, and start doing something. The Jews had been very active, but they had been active in the wrong things. It was time to be active about right things. And maybe that applies to you. I know it applies to me sometimes. Maybe you've been active in wrong things. And I think some questions that we should all ask ourselves is, is God being honored in my life? Is everything I do about bringing glory to God, am I allowing the secondary to become the primary? Am I pursuing the right things? Am I worshiping an idol? Maybe you are. Maybe you don't even realize. You know, it's getting easier as my kids get older, but... As a young father, especially someone who uh, wasn't real involved in church and things related to church work, I kind of drank the Kool-Aid. And we were traveling and playing sports and doing different things on the weekend because, you know, you've got to get ahead. You've got to be, you've got to do everything you can to make sure that, that your son or your daughter is the best athlete. I can remember in coaching that after a while, it became a full-time thing. Even when we weren't playing basketball, you were thinking basketball. You were playing basketball in the summer. You were at camps. You were doing everything you could because you felt so guilty if you weren't because somebody else was getting ahead. I would even tell my players when we're out there practicing baseball in the snow, I tell them, you know, Sulphur Rock, our rival, they're not practicing in the snow. We're out here when they're not. I drank this Kool-Aid, thinking that you always have to be busy because that equals being productive. And, and I was busy, and we were getting ahead, but in the wrong things. And I found it easy to find <coughs> solace in what was not the most important. And Haggai's message is a message to exiles, which includes you and me. We are aliens and pilgrims in a foreign land. Our home is in heaven, and while we are here, we are in exile, and we have to be about the Father's business. 
That is how Haggai's message relates to us. We cannot become so distracted by the busyness of this world that we lose sight of what's most important. And in a very real sense, Haggai's book here, short as it is, is a mirror for us. I think we can find ourselves in this story. We see a reflection of God's people today. The book can really be broken down into four sermons. The first sermon is in Haggai 1, 1 through 15. The second sermon is preached about a month later and is found in Haggai 2, verses 1 through 9. And then the third and fourth sermons were preached two months later on the same day, and they're found in Haggai 2, 10 through 23. Haggai's first sermon does the trick. I don't know how he said it. I don't know how persuasive he was, but evidently he was pretty persuasive. Because his first sermon did the trick. Maybe he scared them to death, scared them into submission, but the people turned around, they became motivated, they heard God's message, and they got to work. And then a month later, Haggai has to come and preach another sermon. But this time it's one of motivation, because he addresses a problem of shattered expectations. The people got to work on the temple, but the temple that they were building was a mere shadow of the one Solomon built. I mean, it wasn't even close to matching the glory of Solomon's temple. It was shabby. I mean, we might look at it like it was a shack, an outbuilding. And the people become discouraged. They had all this motivation finally to do the right thing, to build the right thing. But it didn't even come close to the one that was built some 500 years earlier. And this caused the morale of the people to be very low. And I'm sure that in their minds, they had this vision of making it probably even better than Solomon's temple. But what they built was rather shabby and a mere shadow. And so the people became discouraged. And Haggai steps in to remind the people of the promise of a future kingdom. He kind of redirects their focus. And if you look at Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the, the high priest and the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory, and how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Haggai speaks of this new Jerusalem, a place from which God would redeem the whole world, where all nations would gather and enjoy an era of peace. And the temple is going to play a key role in all of this. And so Haggai's second sermon is a motivational speech to keep pressing forward. And in essence, he's telling them that God is telling them the gold and silver is not important. Look forward 
there's a silver lining. Even though it may be difficult now, there is something glorious on the horizon. Do you realize that we are the recipients of this promise? Do you get that? Do you get that in, in a sense, Haggai is speaking to us? We are living in the glorious future that the prophets, prophets spoke of. That time is now, we are living in it. That something glorious that was on the horizon is here. And we are the beneficiaries of it. Notice again, Haggai 2 and 9. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The temple is finally rebuilt, and the Jews wait. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait for the Spirit of the Lord to return to the temple, just like it did in Solomon's temple. But he doesn't come back. The Spirit doesn't come back. And, and they wait, but there's no sign of him. And Haggai says, the latter glory will be greater than the former. And when Herod becomes king, he tries to dress up the temple with, with gold and, and, and all this other stuff. But that, that's not what makes the temple glorious. That wasn't what God was talking about. And so, was God lying at the time? Did God tell a lie? Did he forget? Why didn't he show up? Well, if you go to Matthew chapter 21, and in verse 12 it reads, And Jesus entered the temple. Underline that in your Bible. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Who entered the temple? Jesus did. The radiance of God, the glory of God entered the temple. And that, my friends, is highly significant. Uh, significant. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus stated that he was greater than the temple. Keep reading, verse 13 and following. And he said to them, it is written... My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. You see what's happening? Is this starting to somehow make a little bit of semblance of sense? All the promises made to Israel were coming to fruition. It was all coming together just like God said it would, just like the prophets said that it would. It was all happening through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's the seed of Abraham. He's the descendant of David. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the radiance of the temple. And he is the latter glory that is greater than the former. That's who Haggai was talking about. That second temple may have been shabby. It may not have been all that aesthetically pleasing. It may have seemed like the Spirit of the Lord would, would not return there, but he did. Jesus enters the temple in all his majesty, in all his glory, in all his radiance, and he begins teaching and healing, and many recognized him. Many believed in him, but others did not. Others rejected him. They did not receive him, which means that the Jew, even today, must ask themselves, did God lie? Did God lie? Because he said he would return to the temple. And now he can't do that because the temple's been destroyed. It was destroyed in AD 70, right? So the Jew has to ask themselves, did, did God lie? No, he didn't lie. He did fill the temple. Jesus filled the temple. If Jesus wasn't the Messiah, then that promise never came true, and there's no way for it to ever come true now because the temple's gone. 
Jesus was rejected by the very people who should have understood the prophets and should have understood the promise. But now today there's a better temple, isn't there? You know where it's at? Right here. It's us. We are the better temple. We are the living stones of a better, more glorious temple. Christ is the chief cornerstone. We are the living stones. The Jews saw that piece of stone called Jesus, and they rejected that stone. They threw it out, or, or more appropriately, they nailed it to a cross. God said, that stone you discarded is going to be the chief cornerstone of something even more glorious, an even more glorious temple. You and I are being built up as the dwelling place of God. We are the temple of the Lord, and this temple far surpasses the first two. You don't believe me? Listen to Scripture. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. As is often the case with Paul's writings, the context here is unity. Paul is talking about getting along, but in this context, he's not speaking of the individual Christian. He's talking about the church. The you here is plural. For us Texans, we could actually translate it as y'all. And that's what he's saying here. Do y'all not know? Do you all not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you all? That's why we can't put so much emphasis on a building. That's why we have to get rid of this idea that you go to church, because you don't. This building, as nice as it is, is not the church. Who fills it is the church. We are the temple. We are the better temple. And have you noticed that when Paul or Peter talks about the temple, they always talk about it being under construction? They always talk about being built up, because we are. We're all a construction project. The chief cornerstone is Jesus. As long as we have the chief cornerstone in place, we can build something fantastic. We can build something phenomenal. We can build something glorious. But we all have to have a commitment to it. And you all cannot be so committed to your paneled houses that you don't put the emphasis on what matters most, which is what we have as the temple of God. He's filling us. As we come together, as the church, I ask you to consider your ways in light of all of this. I ask you to consider your ways. I mean, are you so busy with your own life that you have neglected the Lord's temple? Folks, we've got to stop looking at Christianity as a go-to-heaven-for-free card. We've got to stop looking at Christianity as a spiritual insurance policy because it's so much more than just about a glorious future in heaven. It's about what we have, what we are, and what we're supposed to be doing right here, right now. And isn't it beautiful how our story fits into the story of the minor prophets and the Israelites? Hopefully, if you get nothing else out of this series you're starting to understand that the Bible is one continuous story, and at your baptism, 
We talk about baptism. We talk about how we contact the blood of Christ when we clothe ourselves with Christ. We talk about being a burial and a resurrection, and all of that is certainly true. But the thing that we miss with baptism is that it puts you directly into the story. And now we get to be a part of this story. We have a glorious future on the horizon, and we are the temple being built up right here, right now. And how do we continue the building? By promoting unity, by loving one another, by forgiving one another, by encouraging one another, by stimulating one another to love and good deeds, by bearing one another's burdens, by worshiping God with one another, by following Jesus with one another, and by being here in this place where we're all gathered together. If this is the place where God dwells, if this is the place where he dwells, then you have no excuse not to be here, not to be active. Consider your ways and consider how you can contribute to the building up of God's temple. And if we can help you with that building project tonight, we want to. We want to be a loving family that helps you to understand your place in this story. And if you're not in this story, if you've not been immersed in the waters of baptism for the remission of your sins, then take care of that. Don't leave here tonight without being right with God. And maybe... Maybe you've come to realize by considering your ways that you need to toss some things aside. Maybe you need to reprioritize and get your life back in order. Maybe you need to make an adjustment tonight. Let us help you. Whatever your need is, come now as we stand and as we sing. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. To see you high and lifted up. Shining in the light of your glory, pour out.